Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 143 of Dogcast Radio, which is a departure from our usual style and is the second part of an in-depth interview with author Ted Kerasoti about his new book, Pucker's Promise, The Quest for Longer-Lived Dogs. In the first interview, we discussed how Ted's love for his dog Merle and the experience of mourning for him set Ted on the path to finding the key to delaying that final parting as long as possible. In his previous book, Merle's Door, Lessons from a Free-Thinking Dog, Ted interwove the intimate story of a man and a dog with fascinating research. It was a New York Times bestseller and thousands of readers took Merle into their hearts. While Pucker's Promise will no doubt endear Pucker to readers, and the book is already on the New York Times bestseller list, this book is likely to cause controversy, because his extensive research led Ted to some conclusions that challenge the way many of us treat our dogs. We cover some of that controversial ground in this interview, but we start with the fact that although Ted is lucky to work from home and have time to spend with and observe his dogs, that can bring its own challenges. I asked Ted to tell me about Pucker's first day as a young puppy in Ted's home and how they discovered the power and the danger of an elk bone. Yes, yes, I gave him, he was chewing the books and I sprayed the power cords and the legs of my furniture in my office with this bitter apple spray, uh, which works quite well, it's organic and but he then uh, avoided all of that and was gnawing on my books. And I gave him a, a, one of these chew toys that you stuff with food, peanut butter. I, I stuffed it with bison pate. And he played with that for a while, but then grew bored with it and was gnawing on my books some more. And so finally I gave him an elk bone about 10 inches long with lots of meat on it. And that truly diverted him as it's diverted all the dogs I've known for my whole life, my adult life. But at that point, AJ, uh, one of the yellow labs who lives across the field, came, barked at the front door and I had the dog door closed so Pucka wouldn't inadvertently stray away. AJ came into the office, glowered at Pucka, lay down, and when I answered a call, Pucka got up and walked over to AJ to say hi, and AJ attacked him, bit him in the head. And Pucka was screaming, peed, ran over to the corner of the room. I picked him up, and my arms were covered with blood. And AJ's eye tooth had caught the skin fold under Pucka's eye and opened it up and he was bleeding all over the place. So that was rather traumatic to have my new puppy be bit in the head by a dog whom I had perceived as being his best friend and his mentor. Uh, so I kicked AJ out, took, up, took Puck upstairs and washed his face off and then took him to the vet and we looked at the eye, the eye was fine, and fortunately, everything was okay, though it took a few weeks for Pucka to get over the trauma of having been attacked, and 
Fortunately, no real lasting damage was done. He and AJ are, are now friends. AJ comes into the house all the time with the dogs, other dogs he lives with. And on one hand, it does show the resiliency of, of puppies, but one could never tell had that happened a few days later in what's called a puppy's fear period, who knows whether Pucka might have been traumatized for, for life from it. So I feel very fortunate uh, about this incident, and, and some dog trainers have told me, oh, gosh, didn't you realize that was going to happen? And I didn't. Uh, I had seen lots of adult dogs with lots of puppies and Kelly, and I had never seen that happen before. And had I been really prescient, I would have perhaps defrosted a bone for AJ or not let him in. But be that as it may, that's what happened. And that's how it turned out. Yeah, yeah. Some things, Ted, you just can't foresee. I mean, I've had two of our dogs act one way. You know, the new dog, Rusty, acts a different way. And and you and afterwards you think, why didn't I foresee that? But you can't see everything. Um, it is, it's, it's quite a... A heartbreaking scene that where you describe sitting there with with Pucker in your arms, and the heartbreaking thing is after obviously Pucker's upset, but after all your preparation and research, out of the blue, you know something unforeseen has just could have made it go terribly wrong, couldn't it? Yes, it it could have. <laughs> You're right. After <clears throat> all the time I invested in getting Pucker uh, to have had. Some something really serious go wrong would have would have been quite ironic yeah. uh, there in Kelly once he was home and and just home on the very first day. Yeah, yeah. How you deal with that with with Pucker though is an object lesson, sort of in not passing on your worry to your dog, which I am dreadful at. But you know, th- we 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 see these scenes with you and Pucker where you're going for walks, and then the other three dogs. Um, Burley, AJ and Goo race over and most of us, our instincts would be I'm going to pick my puppy up but you don't do that, do you? You didn't do that. No, not once, not once. Uh, (laughs) And it was, I guess I'm from the school that kids need to fight some of their own battles. I, I was right there for Pucka, standing right next to him with my hand on his shoulder saying by my presence, I'm here for you and I'll try my best not to let AJ attack you again. And I certainly made it clear to AJ by pointing my finger in his face and saying, you're not going to do this anymore, that I was there for Pucka, but he didn't need to be lifted off the ground at that point and be be coddled. No. Uh, when I knew that he was going to have to live with these dogs for the rest of their lives, and he was going to have to get used to meeting them face to face, and eventually that strategy worked. He, within weeks, uh, was stealing AJ's sticks and, and balls from under his nose and facing up to him. So I, I believe that letting him work through that with his four paws on the ground did uh, enable him to become a a more self-reliant dog. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, again, I mentioned last time the humour in the book, which I, you know, very much appreciate. But you describe so beautifully the scene where he takes the ball um, from AJ and the sort of you and the other three dogs with Pucker and sort of the four of you are thinking, this dog doesn't know what he's doing. You know, it's beautiful. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, certainly Goo and Burley, the gold, the English setter and the golden retriever, and I were standing there looking at Pucker steal this softball from from AJ and all three of us were just silently watching thinking, well, this little puppy who just got beat up a few weeks ago doesn't have a clue <laughs> as to what he's done to enrage Darth Vader uh, here. <laughs> uh, but I think AJ realized that Pucka was becoming more his own dog and couldn't be intimidated and <clears throat> As I point out, in the dog world, possession is about 100% of the law. And AJ did not attack Pucka when Pucka was actually eating his bone. He waited till Pucka walked away from the bone and then attacked him. And when Pucka had the softball between his legs and was lying there just staring at AJ in the, in the face... I think AJ did what most dogs do, and that is respect that the even a puppy has a right to something that's between his own two paws. Yeah, yeah. As you say, they they do become friends, and and it's it's beautiful to to read that. Um, Pucker has amazing freedom, as Merle had, you know, a lot of freedom, and I know that that is very close to your heart. That dogs do. Um, get the freedom they they need and and probably want it's very difficult for some of us to to enable our dogs to do that though for example in the uk you know we're told don't even leave your dog in the front garden if there's if people can get access to it because it may well be stolen so do you have any advice for us you know if we're living in that reality how can we give our dogs more freedom It's difficult if you're being warned that someone might steal your dog from the front yard. Of course, course you're going to be worried about it. And probably the best thing to do then would be to take it uh, for long walks or hikes in countryside where it can roam freely ahead of you, but you're still within, say, voice or whistle contact. I I remember when I visited... uh, you and your family, you you pointed out these lovely hills and moors ab- above the the house and in in the distance, where a person could just hike along with their dogs. Mm. And uh, I think that not only is that good for the dog, but it's also good for the people because they're getting more exercise. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't get half as much exercise without our dogs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we are lucky. And I guess everybody, even if they're in quite an urban area, you can find some, you know, a park or something to give your dog some freedom. Well, as I mentioned, I think last time I was really impressed with Hampstead Heath, Hyde Park, 
there's tremendous amount of space there. And I, I, every morning when I'd go out and walk and, and in the afternoon, I'd see people walking with their dogs off leash and the dogs were roaming at great distances from their people, returning and checking in. But that's a beautiful thing for, for dogs to do. Yeah, yeah. One of the areas that you tackle um, that can help our dogs, you know, that has a huge effect on our dogs, is diet. And it seems one of the most contentious issues within diet is, in, within commercial dog food, is grain. Should we be giving our dogs grain or not? That's, th- there's a lot about that in the book, isn't there? Yes, there is. And I, I, there is a lot in that book because it's one of the most controllable things we can do for our dogs. Mm-hmm. We may not know the ancestry of our dogs, especially if we've rescued them uh, or adopted them. The terminology is different for, from nation to nation from an animal shelter. So we may not be able to say that dog X's great-great-grandparents lived to a ripe old age or they died from certain diseases. Uh, We also may not be able to give our dogs as much exercise as we wish because we live in an urbanized environment and so we may be only able to get over to the dog park a few times a week. We may not be able to protect our dogs from all environmental pollutants because they're so ubiquitous. Uh, they're in the air, they're in the water. We have to go to some some fairly large extents to, to shield ourselves and our dogs from these pollutants. But we can absolutely control what our dogs eat. And eating may be one of the most important things, eating properly, to extending the life of our dogs. So yes, I did do a lot of research on that subject. Mm-hmm. And it, what fascinates me, Ted, is even as far back as when the first dog food uh, was invented, Sprat dog food, um, it, it was marketed with unconfirmed health claims. So we don't stand a chance now, do we? <laughs> uh, well, actually, things have gotten better because we've done a lot more science about the canid diet. So we do know a lot more about what is good for them and can make informed decisions. Whereas back in the time of Spratt, uh, he was filling his advertisements with uh, unfounded claims. And uh, since there was no uh, alternative science, Uh, You could either say, I don't believe it, or I do believe it. And of course, many people believed it because what he was offering uh, was so convenient. All this dog food bound up in a nice cake that you could feed your dog. It was one of the first attempts to make feeding dogs much simpler because before that, people were making these stews of entrails and sheep's heads and uh, various meat leavings and vegetables and oats and and frankly dogs were eating better probably if people were giving them that kind of diet than they were after Sprats tried to put wheat and beef blood and uh, 
a, a few nutrients in a in a cake. So today, we we do have the chance to make a, a more informed decision about how to feed our dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I know that after all your research, you um, choose to feed pucker as naturally as possible and, and sort of to avoid grain. Um, it is a, a, a very interesting aspect of the book because you and pucker actually go out and, and find and hunt your own food. Now, I'm vegetarian. You, you probably remember that. And I know you've dabbled with vegetarianism. But I have to say, your approach to your food makes sense to me because you see yourself and pucker as sort of part of the circle of life, don't you? Yes, and as I pointed out in the book, I've tried to look at the ecological costs of all our diets. Mm. And hunting a local elk, which nature grows on grass that no one has planted, and there's not a high fossil fuel input into growing that elk, it, hasn't been grown with the use of pesticides or herbicides. It's not shot up with antibiotics or hormones. It lives free until the moment I shoot it. it is ecologically sounder than importing an equivalent amount of, say, rice and beans from California, uh, where they're where they're grown. Uh, in fact, I did those calculations, and it's. Uh, Hunting the elk costs about 80,000 kilocalories of fossil fuel for planet Earth. Driving to the roadhead, manufacturer of my cars and clothes, whereas the rice and beans cost planet Earth almost 500,000 kilocalories of fossil fuel. Uh, and I also did that con that calculation for beef. Uh, feeding uh, or eating corn-fed beef, 150 pounds of that cost planet Earth. 3,900,000 kilocalories of fossil fuel, about 50 times the amount of fossil fuel than to produce 150 pounds of wild elk meat. So clearly for me, it has been uh, wiser, and I believe for me, morally sounder, to hunt part of my food and Pucka's food locally rather than importing it. And two, even when if one is a vegetarian, one is not getting away scot-free. Mm. Uh, there are animal lives bound up in the growing of our vegetables because songbirds, mice, snakes, rodents are all harvested along with those vegetables in, in big farm machinery. So there are, what would you call it, collateral damage <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. associated <laughs> with growing vegetables and, and grains. Uh, so this is one reason that I've hunted. Uh, but of course, I can't legally hunt enough meat for Pucka to eat. It would take nine elk to feed him about 1,300 pounds of meat and bones and organs a year. And one cannot shoot legally that many elk. So I have had to feed him commercial dog food, and I've elected to feed him a no-grain diet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the level of thought you, you've put into it, um, I found that, again, you know, so interesting, that the calculations that you did. Um, 
and it's part of what makes the book so interesting, that level of, of thought and detail that you've gone into. It, it, it's, it really is overwhelming. It, it, it must be such a, a, a privilege, really, that, you know, that, that's your work, but it's your life as well. It must be wonderful. Well, it was just so exciting and intriguing to do this research because I love doing research. It's It's been part of my life and my writing for years and years, but also I had a high degree of personal investment in this because I wanted to feed my, I've wanted to feed myself well, and I've also wanted to feed Paco well. And so I looked into the studies that have been done on canid diet. And when we look at those, we see that when we feed healthy dogs a high-grain diet, say one that's composed of rice and corn, their blood glucose levels and blood insulin levels spike. There are a whole bunch of other studies that show that keeping those blood glucose and blood insulin levels at the low low side of normal mm. is associated with fewer chronic diseases like diabetes and obesity and longer lifespans in a wide range of species. Nematodes, those are worms, fish, dogs, monkeys, and humans. Still another group of studies, and there are probably more than a hundred of them in the veterinary and human medical literature, demonstrate that eating green leafy and yellow-orange vegetables is cancer-protective. Whether you're a dog or a human, they have anti-inflammatory agents and phytochemicals that prevent certain cancers. And last, we see a group of studies that have been done on sled dogs, beagles, and pointers that show that when dogs are switched from a high-carb diet to a high-protein diet, their performance improves. They're aerobically fitter, they have more endurance, they have a higher VO2 max, and they have better thermal regulation. They pant less, and they drink less water in hot weather. So what does all this tell us? Well, it would tell me, a cautious person, that I ought to feed my dog a low-grain or no-grain diet supplemented with green leafy and orange-yellow vegetables and a good, a high degree of protein, a high-quality protein. And indeed, what have we seen? We've seen that pet food manufacturers have begun to pay attention to this scientific data and now offer pet foods that meet these criteria and they offer offer them in different forms. We can find kibbles that don't contain grain and have high protein and some leafy, green leafy and yellow orange vegetables and we certainly can find dry raw food and frozen raw food that meet all these conditions. And so that's what I decided to feed Pucka after looking at all the evidence. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, you're not the only one with strong opinions about what Pucka eats because he has some of his own, doesn't he? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Pucka has demonstrated that he has strong preferences. There were times where he's rejected his lovely frozen 
raw food lamb breakfast. And I thought, well, maybe he'd like raw elk and he's rejected that. He certainly didn't look sick, but then he gobbled down his dried elk that I offered him. And he's done that repeatedly. Sometimes he doesn't want his chicken, he wants raw elk. And what is wrong with that? We will go into a restaurant and uh, debate in a friendly way or discuss rather with our friends what we should all eat that night and no one thinks twice about it. Why shouldn't dogs have similar preferences? Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's it, it's unusual for a dog to get to exercise that choice. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you're in the mood for food and someone offers you something you're not in the mood for, you're just like, no, no, I couldn't possibly. So absolutely. Yeah. And um, there, if I may add one more thing, mm-hmm. there's good reason to vary a, a dog's diet because then you reduce the chance that the dog is eating the same heavy metals or toxins day in, day out, year in, year out. And uh, on the other hand, if he eats the same thing every day, it could be eating a load of, say, lead, which I did found in my testing to be uh, prevalent in different levels and in different kibbles. Another thing we have to remember about kibble is that they contain heterocyclic amines. Those are the very same chemicals that are formed when you grill meat, and they have been shown to be carcinogenic in rats. Whether they're carcinogenic in humans and dogs has yet to be determined, but there are some scientists that express caution over our dogs eating these heterocyclic amines every single day of their lives because certainly people don't eat grilled steaks and grilled bacon every single day. Well, maybe some of us do, (laughs) but uh, most of us probably don't eat bacon every single morning and a steak every single night and a hamburger for lunch, whereas dogs, when they're eating kibble, are ingesting these carcinogenic heterocyclic amines every single day. So that would be another reason to at least try to feed your dog something else besides kibble every single day. Yeah, yeah. And there are simple ways that you can, you know, if you don't want to go jump straight into raw feeding, there are simple ways that you can do that and extend your dog's diet. And as you say, it is a very good idea. Um, Now, something we're going to have to broach, I I know... um, this will be quite a surprise or a shock to a UK audience. But um, in the book, against the background of very, very positive training um, and giving Pucker all these choices, um, you do use a shock collar with him, don't you? Can you explain the, the circumstances of that? You bet. And let's be clear that I did use a shock collar on Merle, mm-hmm. for which I got a lot of grief for the pos- <laughs> from the positive training positive reinforcement training camp. But as I tried to point out in the book, it was a a matter of either letting Merle go over to this sweet older woman on the other side of Kelly who continued to feed him against my wishes. And he went from a 70-pound dog to a 100-pound dog, quite roly-poly. And she was the only one I couldn't convince 
amongst my neighbors to stop feeding him. Mm. So I was left with no alternative. It was either lock Merle up and end his mayoralty um, and his free-roaming ways or put a shock collar on the sweet old woman, which (laughs) I didn't think I could get away with, or put a shock collar on Merle. So I put it on Merle and it quickly stopped his going over there. Mm. It did catch a lot of grief for it. Mm. And along comes Pucka, let's see, you know, 15 or so years later. And he was very good as a puppy, not chasing deer, elk, bison, and moose. He had learned all his leavits and his uh, two blasts on the silent whistle to return. But when he became a teenager, when he became over a year old, he suddenly forgot, as many teenagers do, their manners and started chasing particularly deer. And no amount of positive reinforcement training with a gentle leader that attaches to a dog's, it's like a harness and and the attachment point is on his chest, so it gently deflects his attention back to you instead of giving him something to pull against. No amount of training with that and using a lunge line could dissuade him from chasing elk. He ended up chasing uh, and in such a robust way that he once knocked me off my feet, broke two of my ribs, uh, knocked himself off his feet several times. And I had to think, how is this positive reinforcement? It was then that I rethought the shock collar, but lo and behold, a decade and a half later, it had been rebranded an e-stim collar, electronic stimulation collar. And what these collars now provide, instead of five crude settings to vary the shock, they have up to 24 gradations to make the so-called shock, rather stimulation, everything from a tiny, barely discernible tickle to a great big jolt. So that's the kind of e-stim collar I bought. I put it on myself Mm. first, on my neck, and worked my way up through the settings until I got to a setting that told me, okay, I can feel that, like a big mosquito bite, but... I'm certainly not cringing from it. I then put it on Pucka. We did a week of fun stuff, swimming, hiking while he wore it. So he had no idea what was going to happen. He just got used to it. We went out uh, on a walk with AJ Burley and Goo. Some deer came along. Pucka chased them. And I blew this. I said, leave it. I blew the silent whistle twice. 20 minutes before, he had listened to both those commands perfectly, but faced with deer, he completely ignored them, demonstrating that a nicely trained dog, when the temptation gets big, can forget everything it's learned. Uh-huh. So Pucka was already 200 yards away when I gave him a nick, N-I-C-K. And that's what the Easton collar trainers 
call the button that gives the dog a one-tenth of one second stimulation. You can't hold the button down and zap the dog continuously. You just touch it once, one-tenth of one second, even if you hold that button down. And it was as if the hand of God came down from heaven. Pucker stopped in his tracks, looked at the deer, as if to say, how did you do that? Turned around, raced back to me, sat by my side, looked up at me, and said with his eyes, you know, Ted, the weirdest thing happened. I was chasing those deer, and I got this sting in my neck. And I said, well, maybe you shouldn't chase deer. It took, over the next couple of weeks, only 12 more stimulations, a total of 1.3 seconds over two weeks to convince Tucker to no longer chase deer. And he retained his freedom. He could go outside and be a free-roaming dog, but he was not going to get shot by chasing deer and be shot by a, a game warden or corner some deer or moose and get kicked in the head and be killed. So for me, the Eastern collar was a wonderful trade-off, and I suspect some people in the positive reinforcement training camp will still disagree with me, but I think those Eastern collars are wonderful training devices when used with discretion and when used by people who have learned how to use them properly. Hmm. I, I, you see, the, I have to say, in, in the UK, they are, you know, you, you, you would not use one. Um, you know, sort of if you were positive training, you just would not use one. They... they you know, we just don't have, we don't, I mean, they're banned in Wales. So it is something we have to broach. Obviously, there's, there's cultural differences. And as you say, in your circumstance, it worked for you. But I think one of the problems is, as you say, if people don't know how to use them, it can cause so many problems with the dog. Correct. That's why they've got such a bad, you know, a bad reputation, you know. And in reality, they can be very bad as well. Yeah. Mm. But on the other hand, we live in a place where you can't, walk down the road without running into deer or elk or moose mm. or bison. Yeah. Those, and so dogs, those are huge temptations for dogs. Mm. And for some dogs, there's no amount, I believe, of positive training reinforcement yeah. that can trump a big juicy deer bounding <laughs> off in front of the dog. It, yeah. The dog forgets everything it's learned and I've seen this repeatedly whereas uh, when the dog is still you know 200 yards away from you and your calls and whistles are totally futile the East End caller that one-tenth of one second reminder works and for me knocking Pucka off his feet with the gentle leader was not positive reinforcement. Yeah, yeah. Despite it being billed as positive reinforcement. Uh, to me, the East End Collar was far less violent a way to remind Pucka that he couldn't chase wildlife. Yeah, yeah. You do make a very compelling case in the book. You know, I have to say that I read it and kind of thought, 
yeah, I don't know how I'd argue with that. <laughs> so, you know, to be fair, but, um, you know, that we, we had to broach that. So um, now some of the other research that is troubling is the, the vaccination research, because, you know, we, we there are certain vaccinations that we have to give our dogs and we have to start them off, I would, you know, assume. But it's, you know, what level do we do and, and how do we make sure that we're not putting chemicals back and, and um, antibodies back into their bodies that they don't actually need. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, there are, there are no vaccinations required in the UK. We're not compelled to, no. No. And so you, you have it pretty good there compared mm-hmm. to the United States where it's legally mandated that a dog get a rabies vaccination every three years come what may. Uh-huh. Uh, and the... Uh, in some municipalities in the United States, a dog needs to get a vaccine, a rabies vaccine, every single year, which wow. most experts in this country believe is overkill. Mm-hmm. Most veterinarians in this country also will say that a dog needs to be periodically vaccinated for distemper, parvo, and adenovirus too, all three of which are prevalent in North America. But as you point out, how much is needed? And the American Animal Hospital Association's Vaccine Task Force now recommends that dogs not be vaccinated any more frequently than triennially, every three years, with those four core canine vaccines, parvo, distemper, adenovirus 2, and rabies. But we have some experts like a fellow named Ron Schultz, Dr. Ron Schultz, who works at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, one of the most famous canine immunologists in the world, who says, you know, instead of vaccinating your dog every three years, come what may, why not get your veterinarian to draw a blood sample, have it titered, meaning measure the antibodies the dog has developed against the diseases for which it's been vaccinated. And if we see that our dog has immunity, no need to vaccinate it further for the rest of life. Instead of revaccinating it every three years, give it a tighter test every three years. This is what I've done with PUCA. And Dr. Schultz is now conducting a study at the University of Wisconsin-Madison to try and prove that the duration of immunity for the rabies vaccine is in fact seven years as his titer data and data from France have shown. And if he's correct and can prove that to the USDA's satisfaction, the United States Department of Agriculture is the licensing agency for canine vaccines, then Americans won't have to vaccinate their dogs against rabies any more frequently than every three years, which will be a very good thing because the rabies vaccine produces more adverse reactions than any of the other vaccines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that is incredible because you don't realise when you live in the UK and, and there are situations where you would be required to produce a certificate of vaccination for a dog show or for kenneling your dog, but we're not legally compelled to. One of the issues that we do have a problem with is 
I had Buddy teeter tested, um, and he was down on one component of the three, com- and I can't remember the, what what that was, but there was three components in one vaccination. He was low on one, but we couldn't find separate um, vaccinations, so he had to have the three again, and it was so frustrating. Really, because. In North America, you can find the separate components. Mm. Yeah, that would have been—I would have been so much happier with that because I'd, I'd done the right thing, you know. I'd teeter tested, but then I'm left with, well, do I let him go, knowing he's low on that? And also, right. one of the points you you make in the book is have a baseline assessment done when your puppy is little, so you know what his natural level of immunity is and what his his blood, you know, what the uh, what the constituents in his blood are yes um to do a a full blood workup what in a human would be called a cbc count complete blood count and measure the the components of his blood say every year so you can see how things uh either stay the same or change and then if there are problems you can address them before they become serious yeah yeah Another thing that seems to shorten our dogs' lives and and give them health problems is stress. And probably we wouldn't think of our dogs as suffering from much stress because they don't have to pay a mortgage and they don't have to go out and do a job and get the shopping in. But they do have sources of stress, don't they? Yeah, and some of the biggest ones are being crated. I don't know how prevalent that is in the UK, but in the United States... Many people crate their dogs all day long while they're at work because they haven't trained their dogs to leave the furniture alone. And being crated for a dog is stressful. It raises its glucocorticoid levels. Um, it stresses the adrenal glands. And if this happens day after day, uh, you can get adrenal burnout. You can get Cushing's disease. We also need to remember that dogs are social beings. They're pack animals, and they don't like being left alone long periods every single day of their lives. Uh, I, I don't, as I said, I don't know how prevalent crating and is in the UK. Yeah, we, it, it is popular. Um, I think I would... My use of crates is when a dog is... Yeah, you know, when we have a puppy... Is very useful then, but I certainly wouldn't leave one for, for hours on end in a crate. And when our dogs are adult dogs, they don't have a crate anymore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I th- certainly, I, d- I don't think many people would go out and leave their, a dog in a crate sort of all day like that. Not, not in that way. But they are, you know, they're very popular over here. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, as you say, train your dog how to behave in the house. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes down to training, doesn't it? Yes, it does come down to training, and as I, as I tried to point out in the book, I think we need to reimagine our concept of training, because numerous studies have now shown that autonomy, having the ability to make one's own choices, at least some of the time, goes hand-in-hand with a longer lifespan, whether you're a baboon, a zebra, a wolf, or a human. And most of our dogs don't enjoy such autonomy. They're told what to do all the time. Mm. So I think it would be helpful if we paid more attention to 
listening to what they're saying about the freedoms they want, and certainly some of those freedoms would be to get to lead their walks instead of always being told where to go, and to uh, get to run in a green place with other dogs at dog speed, not human speed, at least several times a week, if if not more. Uh, And instead of just constantly teaching them by rote, sit, come, lie down, uh, stay, uh, allow them to make more of their decisions when they're off the leash. Yeah, yeah. It certainly works for you. Um, <laughs> one of the, the things I find very charming about you is you, you enter a dog's world. You know, you, you, you meet them on their terms, if you will. And sort of, you know, you, you write about crawling through dog doors. You do play bows. Um, you know, you, you t- perhaps take it further than most of us would. And even when, um, when Pucker points out scat to you, uh, poo of various animals you will sniff that as well and sort of say thank you pucker so you really do enter a dog's world don't you well yeah and i think that's quite important and you you bring up that that instance of of smelling poo and we were walking along the grovant river and pucker went off, pointed off the trail and i said what is it show me and he ran over and found some scat uh the the poo of wild animals, at least in in America or Africa, is called scat. And mm. so uh, I bent down and and picked it up, and uh, we had our noses on each side of it. And I said, "Muskrat." And do you think it came up over there? And I pointed to the the slide the muskrat used to come up the riverbank. And Papa looked over, gave a wag of his tail, and. I read what he was saying is, yes, I do think that animal came up over there. And I said, well done. Thank you for pointing it out. I would have missed it completely. And when we, I put it back on the grass and when we walked away, Pucker looked very puffed up (laughs) as if um, he had shown me something that I wouldn't have noticed. And I was willing to acknowledge his find and that it was important. And I really believe that that dogs uh, don't get that enough. Uh, the acknowledgement of their world and what they're doing as having some import and value for us. Uh, in other words, validating uh, their experience. And I think that leads to more self-actualized dogs with with better self-images of themselves. Mm, mm. You also in, invite Pucker into your world. Um, I love the way you teach him the words for things. You tell him the English words for, for animals, for plants. Um, and I love that it's a ram, isn't it, that you're, you're telling him that's a, a, a ram, a sheep. And this lady says, oh, that's silly teaching him the words. But he, he does seem to pick them up. Well, yes, and... and <laughs> This is not new information, and certainly I am not the first person to have done this. Uh, There have been scientific papers published about these very smart border collies, Rico and Chaser, Mm. uh, who knew respectively hundreds and and now over a thousand words, Chaser does. 
And so you can teach dogs the words for things. We all know, most dogs know the word for walk, for example, or leash, or lead. Uh, and I've just extended that, and with Merle, taught him the names of all the animals who surrounded us, and he soon had a greater taxonomic knowledge of the species amongst whom we lived, as do uh, most people who are not interested in, in nature. Uh, so I could say elk and moose and bison, and, and Merle would know whom I was talking about, and now Pucker does as well. And the instance you point out was Pucker and I had only been together, gosh, three days. We were coming home from Minnesota through Yellowstone National Park, and I spent two days there pointing out all the wildlife to him. His very first experience as a seven-week-old puppy to this, wide-eyed, he watched buffalo and and uh, antelope and elk and listened to wolves and saw coyotes and grizzly bears. And there, there are some very habituated to people, bighorn sheep in Yellowstone. And there's one particular ram uh, that I saw uh, very close to the road. And many people were photographing him. And I walked close with the other people and said, oh, so exciting, Pucka, look at that, a bighorn sheep, bighorn, Pucka, bighorn. And I heard someone behind me say, did you, any, did you ever hear anything as stupid as that? The guy is telling the puppy it's a bighorn sheep. And perhaps it did look silly, but Pucka now knows what bighorn sheep are. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's not important to many people, but it's certainly important to me and to my dogs since we live amongst these animals uh, every single day. And the point being that people who live in cities live in equally rich environments. It's just that the destinations and objects and animals are different. But dogs can certainly learn pigeon, horse, cow, car, a truck, bicycle, uh, there's no reason why they can't have a large vocabulary in urban and suburban places. Mm -hmm. Do you think you may be the first person to grapple with trying to convey to your dog what the moon is? Uh, yes, <laughs> I may be. And, and you bring up a very good point. Uh, I, I would name everything that Pucker would look at. And because I started that as a very young pup, puppy, uh, he would look at things that he saw for the first time and he immediately turned to me with a look that said, what's that? That's a jet. What's that? That's a bluebird. What's that? That's a helicopter. And there we were walking along the river one day and there's the moon, the three-quarter moon in the blue Wyoming sky and Pucko looks up with this look of astonishment, turns to me and says, what's that? <laughs> and the thought crossed my mind, well, how do I explain what this planetary body 240,000 miles away is to a young puppy, much less an adult dog? So <laughs> I simply said, moon, that's the moon, Pucka. And he looked up and he goes, 
okay, the moon. And on we walked. <laughs> it's beautiful. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book, Ted, and I recommend it to any, any dog lover, anybody, but particularly dog lovers, obviously. Um, Pucker is the, the, the central dog character. Um, there are a cast of dogs around Pucker that he grows up with. We've mentioned AJ, um, Buck, um, and and they are ageing. We see the effects of age on them. We can't make our dogs live forever, but do you think we, we, we can and should arm ourselves with, with the necessary knowledge and at least play the odds? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the entire premise of the book is that we can extend our dogs' lives by addressing those seven factors that we talked about way back at the beginning of the interview, poor or thoughtless inbreeding, over-vaccination, poor nutrition, exposure to environmental pollutants, spaying and neutering. Uh, in our country, how the North American shelter system works and uh, giving dogs more freedom. So yes, I believe we can extend our dogs' lives. Will they ever live as long as we do? Probably not. But I know Labrador Retriever breeders in the United States who have labs who have lived to 18 years old and whose the average age of their labs under their care over the last couple decades has been 15 years. That's three years longer than Labrador Retrievers live in both the UK and in the United States. And so some people are, are managing to produce and keep longer-lived dogs, I simply try to give the knowledge base to, to everyone uh, to, to help them give their dogs longer lives. Will it, will it work in every case? Of course not, because genetics plays a huge part in longevity, whether you're a human or a dog. We know numerous cases of people who did all the right things, ate great food, exercised, uh, kept their environmental pollutants at bay, and still died in their 50s. Mm. And then there's Winston Churchill, who drank whiskey, smoked cigars, didn't exercise, and lived to a ripe old age. So there is no guarantees, but as you said, we can try to hedge our bets. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ted, I think your book will help many people do just that. I hope it does, and let's hope we do get longer-lived dogs. Thank you very much, Julie, for having me on your show. I'd like to say a big thank you to Ted for taking time to talk to me twice, and I thoroughly enjoyed both talking to him and sharing his and Pucker's journey. I was delighted to discover that Pucker and I share the same birthday. You can find out more about Ted at www.tedcarisotti.com and there is a Pucker's Promise Facebook page too. Both those links are on the Dogcast Radio website along with some charming photos of Ted and Pucker. Our next show will be our Crufts 2013 coverage and there will be a video version of the show. Till next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com 
radio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident dogcast radio. That's all one word, dogcast radio. By email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What's a vampire's favourite dog? A bloodhound. What's a vampire's second favourite dog? Another bloodhound.